If you were asked to name a major distinction that separates one form of worship tradition from another for churches found in your town, could you? Welcome to episode 36 of What We Believe and Why with pastor, author, and teacher, Dr. George Byron Koch. There's a good chance either baptism or communion will land at the top of the list of worship traditions that distinguish one church from the next. These are powerful practices that fuel both passionate faith and bitter disputes. We're in the midst of a discussion of religious concepts, and we'll continue that today by taking a further look at both baptism and communion. Here's George. We are spending time together looking at idolatry in the church and finding it in this remarkable place in our concepts about church, our concepts about God, our concepts about denomination and doctrine. There is idolatry there, which we've realized now we really must deal with. God desires all of our worship to him and not to our ideas about him. And we're beginning now to look at some of the specific issues over which we have conflicted, over which we have fought bitterly, and how we have idolized our own ideas. And the first one that we're looking at is baptism. Boy, this is one of those subjects where angels fear to tread because it is argued about viciously often in the church. But we're going to look. Baptism with water in Scripture, it's a physical action with a spiritual meaning. Yet, there are no rules given in Scripture regarding who can do baptism or receive it. And nowhere in Scripture will you find a formula for only an adult making a specific and individual profession of faith and then being fully immersed in water with certain unfailing words. There are groups in the church will insist that this is necessary and that it must take this form. And there are other groups in the church which take a completely different view. So let's look at some of these differences and how they have played out in the life of the church. Some will baptize infants unfailingly and adults only if they had not been baptized as infants. These sects will not rebaptize an adult if he or she was baptized as an infant, believing baptism can only happen once, though they normatively require someone baptized as a child to go through confirmation when they reach the age of reason and then profess their faith in Jesus. Other groups will refuse to baptize infants, insisting that only an adult can make a true profession of faith, and only after this can baptism occur. If an adult was baptized as an infant, it's considered no baptism at all, and rebaptizing is required, though of course it isn't considered rebaptizing because the first baptism isn't acknowledged. Some groups sprinkle or pour water for baptism. Others call this Satan's counterfeit and require full immersion. Some denominations recognize baptisms done by some other denominations. Others consider them meaningless and insist on baptizing anyone joining their church from outside the denomination. Some ritually baptize ancestors who died outside of their denomination and even outside of the faith. 
Some churches will allow followers of Jesus to receive communion in their church only if they have been baptized. Others will allow anyone professing faith to receive communion. Still others will allow anyone who desires it to receive communion. Some will allow only members of their denomination and who have been baptized in their denomination to receive communion in their church. And some believe, as in the story I told back in chapter 3, that unless you have been baptized in their single local church, you are still lost in your sins. Every one of these positions on baptism is argued voluminously by countless authors over many centuries. And those who disagree with any of these positions have either fled or been forced out of their churches. Although today these debates consist at best of lengthy analysis and argument, and at worst of ad hominem accusations, sarcasm, and disfellowship, over the centuries, thousands of people were literally tortured and killed for choosing one side or another in this disagreement. It was and still is a scandal. Every one of these rituals and practices around baptism, as well as the doctrines and canons that accompany them, come from a religious concept drawn from pieces of scripture and tradition and reasoned out in a thoroughly analytical Greek way and are then used as a plumb line by which to judge the faith and worthiness of individuals and other concepts. That's baptism. Similarly, with communion, another huge issue of dispute and disfellowship in the church. The night before Jesus died, he gathered his disciples for a Passover meal. And here's what the scripture says. While they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. That's what the scripture says. And then he told them that whenever they gathered for a meal, they do this again to remember him. It was a simple moment, clear, foreboding, and hopeful. But the church, over many centuries, via many sects and their concepts, has turned it into a complex series of doctrines and practices which divide the church into bitter rivalries and thereby ignore the one who asked to be remembered. One group allows only ordained clergy to preside at the serving of bread and wine at communion. Some of these allow ordination by the local congregation to serve in ministry to it or to be sent by it to serve elsewhere. Some of these have no process for ordination at all and believe only in the priesthood of all believers. 
Others require ordination by a regional group, with rules set down at the national level. Some of these require ordination by a bishop, who is overseen by a cardinal, primate, or regional bishop. Some of these require that every bishop ordaining every cleric have been ordained by a bishop in the unbroken apostolic succession. The list of bishops from the time of the apostle Peter. Others deny that any such succession exists, or that it is unbroken. Some believe that the wine Jesus used was actually grape juice, because surely he wouldn't have used anything that contained alcohol. Some are offended if grape juice is offered instead of, or in addition to, wine. Some use gold or other costly materials for chalices to hold the wine and have everyone drink from the single chalice. Others allow only a priest to drink the wine. Still, others use small plastic cups with grape juice. Some use only unleavened bread. Some use only leavened bread. Some use either. Some have used milk and cookies, literally. Others found this to be blasphemy. Some break the communion wafers into nine pieces and drop them in the wine, serving the mixture of both with a tiny spoon. Some will allow even an individual alone by him or herself to have bread and wine, remembering Jesus as he asked. Some believe the bread and the wine literally become the body and blood of Jesus. Some explain this as transubstantiation, a concept fabricated by Aquinas from an idea he got from Aristotle and Plato. Others prefer the idea of consubstantiation, while still others go for dynamic presence. Some believe it is literally the body and blood of Jesus. But don't explain how that can be true. Some believe in the real presence of Christ in the bread and the wine. Others find this idea superstitious and unnecessary. Some believe the bread and wine become His body and blood during the communion service and continue to be so. Others believe they revert to just bread and wine right after the service. Some don't believe they are His body and blood at all. But bread and wine eaten merely as an act of remembering him. Some sects revere any leftover bread and place it in a special box or frame, and allow people to worship at it because they believe it is Jesus. Others simply throw the leftovers in the garbage. Some allow lay people to gather close at the altar. Others fence off the altar area with railings or screens and permit only the ordained clergy and their aides to enter. And the list goes on and on and on. And we will hear even more of the varieties and ways that people insist communion must be done. In just a minute. Thanks, George. Take your emotional temperature right now. How are you reacting to some of these traditions, especially the ones more different from your traditions? Do you find yourself mentally scratching your head and wondering how such a tradition could have survived rational thought? If some form of this type of response has drifted into your mind, then you'll understand the energy behind the division this topic has the potential to generate. Nevertheless, with the intent of deepening our understanding, we'll continue working through the variations after this quick break. 